I think that rejuvenation of our criticism is already upon us. It just is not quite surfacing yet because of certain models and terrors that are in place. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. One thing you learn as the editor-in-chief of an art publication is that art is just an astronomically huge category. First of all, there's the art that stretches back to prehistory, the dawn of mankind, a subject of infinite fascination that we are learning more about every day. Then there's the sweep of art history, a canon that is constantly being reordered and reconsidered. Then there's the art of our present day, including both the stuff recognized by the art world and the stuff being made on its outskirts that we aren't even yet able to see as being art. So now take that, spread it around the world, across generations, across genders, across social identity groups, and you get a picture of the entire sweep of what we're looking at. And it's not new that art is such a huge category. What is new is that the internet levels it by making it more or less equally accessible, and the long overdue pushes towards representation and inclusion mean that more of it is relevant than ever before. So a question that has been bothering me for some time is what does it mean to be an art critic today? How do you choose what to write about? And how do you even choose what to look at in an age where seeing art in person, which used to be the most common way people encountered art, has now arguably become the rarest? Well, consider me a kid in a candy store, because today I have the great pleasure of posing these questions and more to none other than Jerry Saltz, the most famous, most lionized, and arguably the most influential art critic we have. A self-described failed artist who only became a professional critic at age 41, Jerry wrote for The Village Voice, Artnet, and other publications before becoming New York Magazine's resident art critic in 2006, where he's been on a run of glory that has included winning the 2018 Pulitzer Prize for Criticism. But while he's well-known for his exuberant, beautifully wrought criticism, he's even better known as what might be termed an art critic in the expanded field, sharing his voice and opinions every day with some half a million followers apiece on Twitter and Instagram, together with frequent TV appearances and a half dozen books, the latest of which is called Art is Life, which has just been published by Riverhead Books. That's enough preamble. Let's talk criticism. Welcome back on The Art Angle, Jerry. Hi, Andrew. It's great to be back with you and the Art Angle audience. Thanks. So I know from your Twitter feed that you were recently on book tour in Chicago, where you were born and where you experienced a hellish layover that you documented in your characteristically intimate style. (laughs) So now we're talking on Zoom. Where, Where are you calling in from today? I went home, exhausted, beat, thrilled, because critics... You think we're these big, noisy, annoying creatures, and we are. The truth is, however, I see 25 to 30 shows a week, Andrew. Roberta Smith, my wife and the co-chief art critic for the New York Times, still do that. As you mentioned in the introduction, and thank you for that, the art world is vast, and yet I find that... More and more art critics are showing up less and less, and I find this puzzling. I've asked scores of dealers, and they report that they might see a critic in Hong Kong 
or London or Berlin or at Documenta or the Venice Biennale, and they don't see them in their gallery ever, let alone regularly. A critic's job for me is to notice things and then say what we notice. And I'm always sort of shocked that geezer critics like me, Roberta, the late Peter Sheldahl, and others are still writing. And I think that's partly due, and I'm sure I'm deluded, to the fact that we losers still go around to our list of galleries, see the shows, and then try with never being too wed to our opinion or having to be a high priest of this or that cause or constantly peddling an agenda, say what we saw, try to compare it to other things and always give opinion. And that's just happening, I find, less and less as we get more and more top 10 art fair booths, top 10 prices, top 10 young artists, top 10 Ecuadorian artists, best, you know, this. And I always wonder, there in New York and most cities listening to this, there might be 100 to 300 shows, and they're all this stuff that isn't being paid as attention to by critics when truthfully, and now I will shut up, 1% of 1% of 1% of the art world, I find, is getting 99% of the coverage. And to me, this is a world out of balance. And the only reason a loser art critic like me can still be writing at all so you asked a question, I came home, I'm already seeing shows, good, bad, and very bad, and preparing to write about them. Amazingly, you've zeroed in in precisely what I want to talk about. So your new book, Art is Life, is a compendium of the art criticism that you published for New York Magazine. And I remember when I first got my first art journalism job way back in 2006 at Art News, pretty much every famous mainstream publication had at least one art critic. Let's go back to when you started at The Village Voice. What was the role of the art critic in the culture at large, and what was the community of art criticism like? Okay, I start writing when I'm about 40. I write crapola stuff that I had read in art form and all the other catalogs and journalism, art press, that I learned to write the late commodified object of post-capitalist Marxist simulacra finds a haptic but not a liminal space that interrogates yada yada. And one day, because as all artists and writers know, deadlines are sent from heaven via hell. I was forced because I procrastinated and I've never missed a deadline. That is my one great pride. Maybe that should be my um, tombstone when I'm dead. I had no choice because I was rushed to write what I really thought, which meant what I didn't like and what I did like in my own voice. And that sort of got me going. I got a call from Vince Letty at the Village Voice, which was then the sort of top job in the corporation of art criticism of the senior critic of The Voice. And I said, no way, I'm not ready. And a week later, I accepted the job. The truth is, none of us are ready when we get the job we get. I'm still learning on the job every week, 
dancing naked in public. What it felt like then is what I feel like now. I lashed myself to the mast of the art ship and decided that I would look in every direction, not just at painting or not just at pictures art or not just at art by women or this or that, ism or that, and try to see as much as I could and report back and be willing to fail flamboyantly in real time and be able to come back to my reader and talk about those missteps and bad journeys as well as the time really well spent. And now there may be nine of my people left writing for print journalism. To finish this little mini journey, my book, on the one hand, is the story of the 21st century as told by that weird creature who lashed himself accidentally to this mast on the one hand and witnessed probably the greatest changes, positive and negative, that have ever occurred in art history. And on the other, the demise of my job, but the failure, I'm afraid, of thousands of critics to rush into the space that is now empty of weekly critics on a clay-coated paper, shiny paper like me, when critics never made any money, still make no money. And yet, online, there should be scores of critics, but instead, no one is being critical. Every show is good. And that shocks me. Every TV show is good. Every movie is good. I think criticism is a way of being respectful of art. I think it shows no respect that 99% of all criticism is positive. So criticism is now in a tremendous place where If 20 critics just took to online on Artnet or anywhere and just wrote at least as mediocre as I did with opinion, never punched down, I think that rejuvenation of our criticism is already upon us. It just is not quite surfacing yet because of certain models and terrors that are in place. I would also argue that I think that the fundamental job or task of an art critic may have slightly switched in certain very maybe banal ways. Because when you think back to, you know, this, let's say, early, you know, aughts or the, you know, the 2000s, you could divide critics into pretty much three main groups with certain, you know, overlaps, where one was, you know, the great describers, the people who would give readers all over the world a mental image of what was going on in galleries and museums, what seemed to be important. Then you had those academic postulators that you uh, you mentioned before who were probing the liminal space and weaving majestic, impenetrable theories about what artists were trying to do in their studios. And then thirdly, you had those great pugilist critics like Robert Hughes, who uh, you know kind of took to heart that cedar and tavern philosophy that an art conversation wasn't complete until you punched somebody in the face. <laughs> Bullies. He was a bully. Where do you feel you fell in, in those kinds of three categories? Look, it was online that I discovered myself. I was writing and still am in print, but 
it was online that I understood that I could not have to approach the academic way, never interested in only describing, especially now that every person on earth takes pictures and we put every picture in a social network and every picture is seen by every person in our extended networks. And I knew I didn't want to be bullish like Robert Hughes. As with Greenberg and so many others, they're really great. And then their taste freezes at a certain moment and they never grow. Okay. I, because I was on the goddamn mast, my taste was being challenged daily. And the stuff I thought was good, people thought wasn't. And I would have to defend it or not. I wanted to invert the pyramidical model of criticism of the one writing to the many, online is where I discovered it. Instead of having the one write to the many, I could have the many speak to each other, that that could flatten the playing field. I used to be on all the top 100 art power lists. And then the last one, I think, came in like 2012 or something, where I'd been doing this online more and more and more and being reprimanded widely. And finally, Art Review put me one ahead of Jasper Johns, which shows you how ridiculous these lists are. But the point is, they threatened me. They said, if Jerry Saltz continues to practice art criticism online, he will never be on these lists again. And they were right. However, I'm not ashamed. I have an urge to speak to the reader Roberta says the person who writes books or for magazines is essentially recording in the studio where she, I, others, we are performing live. And in my case, I'm not comparing myself to the great, great Bob Dylan at all, who is on the never ending tour, has been on tour for 25 years. I want to be on the never ending criticism of writing daily, twice, thrice, and I write in heat and post at once. And then late that night, I'll look and see 500 people tear me a new one. And it becomes a communal, self-organizing organism. And I'm not ashamed of it, even if I'm not that good at it. I would actually agree with you that you really found yourself as a critic when you went online. And this is really interesting because you were nominated for the Pulitzer Prize twice, I think once in 2001 and once in 2006, before the internet kind of came in and changed everything. And what interestingly happened when the internet came in, and I remember this because I was part of this first wave, you know, back in 2010, when I was the editor at Art Info, I saw the pendulum shift where all of a sudden, you know, you used to have all these print publications that had incredible power. And also the print critics for the mainstream publications, they had incredible power. And then what happened when journalism started to go online and the advertising model started to shift to the far worse deal of CPM-based, you know, clicks for cash, the people who were running the businesses of these publications started to realize that they could see which articles were getting read. All of a sudden, everything became transparent and it was clear that art criticism was driving tiny, tiny, tiny numbers <laughs> of clicks. 
tiny. And all of a sudden, you started seeing this vast die-off across the country of art critics in local newspapers, national newspapers, magazines. It was astonishing to see. Nobody needed the great describers anymore because you had something like Contemporary Art Daily, where you could just go and see all the pictures from a show that you could ever imagine. But you figured out how to crack the code. You were the best adapted. I was the last adapter. I'm always the last adapter. Do you know that I'm so old, no one has ever touched my phone. I don't know how to do fuck nothing on it. I still have never gone on whatever is called YouTube. That is how late I could be. Let me say something about the die-off. I don't think it's actually because of where the clicks went. It's because of what the critics became afraid to do. I don't know if it was a failure of nerve, the need for love that I, that we all have. But if you're only writing to be loved, that means you're only writing shows that you love and that you love and like everything. That I think that you're not normal. That because the minute you get with real people, they start talking about what they don't love. Okay. And that goes on all day and all night. And when we click on all of our sites, everybody then loves everything. It doesn't square. In my case, I was thrilled to start seeing the numbers of who was reading me. And I'm very lucky. I'm not the best art critic at all. I think Roberta Smith is the greatest living art critic, but I would think that. I'm not the best art critic by any stretch of the imagination. I'm the most read art critic. One thing I used to do, but I lost my password to check how many people are reading me. It's an enormous number, Andrew, but what I learned was how long they would stay on my page if they were reading the whole thing or just clicking. And every time I was trying to get better, if they weren't reading this kind of review, I didn't stop doing it like other critics might have stopped. I tried to do it better. I think I'm at fault for every single misapprehension or attack on my work. And I always read every comment and I try to think, how did I leave myself being open? The point about critics and the die off. They weren't brave enough or willing or otherwise equipped to say, I liked this in the uh, Marlene Dumas show, but I didn't like this and that's why. Or they would be squirrely about it and in the next to the last sentence, bury the word like, well, therefore this work was problematic. And you go, the fuck? Is that good or bad? Is it academia that did it? People say, oh, we won't be paid. But Andrew, have you ever edited out a negative adjective from anybody ever, unless it might have been Charlie Finch, ever? (laughs) Well, luckily, I didn't have the experience of editing Charlie Finch. Tell your readers, though, that that is a misnomer lie. You would love to have your critics say what they do and what they don't like. Is that true? Absolutely. I mean, passion, authenticity, trying to cut through. Why don't they? Why? Look, I agreed to never be paid by your magazine for 10 years, 12 years, that I would be given access. I'm not allowed to read it. You don't even give me a password. I'm complaining. but. 
I do see these same lists. I think that, yes, if you got to keep in business to run the lists, good. I, too, benefit from it. I've never woken up a morning without checking in on your site and others. And I'm always like, where are the reviews? Since they don't make any money anyway. And no one reads them anyway. You can use, there's this word loss leader that the industry uses. You can fucking run it. You could run reviews of these shows and you could ask your critics to be critical. Jerry's asking you. Jerry wants you to tell the truth. I'm with you. I, I'm so glad that it's we easy. have the brilliant Do Ben it. Davis, who, who's probably the most socially relevant critic of our okay. time in terms of his ability to really speak to how art is embedded in class and social construct. I mean, one other big shift aside from the internet and maybe, you know, concomitant link to it was the fact that the art business used to be small and all of a sudden it became a big business. Around the same time that the internet started uh, expanding its reach, that didn't really work for a long, long, long time. But somehow money started coming in and the art world exploded. The position of the art critic, where it used to be that you would be on the Power 100 list, or you would have the ability to sink an artist like a stone with you know, one you know, short part of a sentence or an entire you know, piece. All of a sudden, the art critic's power started to wane in certain respects. How do you understand this period? A couple of things. Money did come into the art world in amounts that we have never seen before. And that is still true. We live in a great paradox where about 51% of collectors are probably Republican or hardcore Trumpist Republicans. And yet a lot of the art that they buy or show if they're museum trustees and board members is expressly against them. This is a paradox. If you're not going to be like a garage band and be so pure that you will not sign a contract with a company, fine. But otherwise, I believe, like Laurie Anderson said, we are the hand, the hand that takes. And that right now, we need to take that money with certain obvious exceptions. Again, critics abdicated just fucking abdicated when it was time to do criticism. But now something is happening. There were two pandemics. One, when we first went inside in March, and we all returned to the condition of the caves, making art out of what was close at hand, with whatever we could in smaller spaces, with your children, with your parents, with the dog, with Nana living there. The kitchen, the studio, the pharmacy, the bedroom, the living room became one space as the angel of death walked among us. But while that angel was walking with us, the second pandemic hit, which was George Floyd. And everybody, especially people younger than me, who were immunocompromised or lived in those situations, rushed back on the street. And after 50 years of artists talking the talk, we have seen the greatest demographic changes in the art world by far in my lifetime in the last, say, five or 10 years. The market led that, believe it or not, our right-wing institutions or, you know, board members led that. The galleries actually ended up following 
Now, a couple of points. First, that means the more women, artists of color, underrepresented, disabled, queer, whatever. I'm an illegal Estonian immigrant. I'm even seeing Estonians showing. So everything is taking the stage. Everyone in private complains, wow, man, this is like opening the doors to huge mediocrity. And my answer is yes, but that's no different than the mediocrity that's been here 175 years to punch up. Look at a career like Sean Scully. He paints blurry squares and stripes and boxes and stuff. He sells for 1.2 million or something or 100,000 or whatever it is, a lot of money. He has museum shows. He's pretty mediocre. I think if somebody as mediocre as you, Andrew, or me, who had second, third, fourth, fifth chances, There's no reason that a woman should not be given those chances. And here's what I'll tell you as a 71-year-old geezer who speaks slow with a Chicago accent. It all washes out over time. The second, criticism is changing and critics are stepping up in a fascinating way that I'm really not part of. That is because they want to be the shoulders that this art might stand on, that they can help make it visible, help lift it up. Does that mean no negative criticism? Unfortunately, it does right now. But you know what? A lot of critics are taking that path. And maybe it's a new path of only positive criticism to explicate the work. I would say that Still, there are huge problems in a lot of work where it's all in the goddamn wall label, like somebody takes a monochrome brown painting, says they brought it to the Red Sea, and they washed it in the mud and dried it in the sand in the former Palestine, and now they're showing it on the wall, and this is about the diaspora. And I would say, no, it's not. It's a generic monochrome painting. All of that is in your head. I would like some critics to do that. Right now, I do it. I get yelled at for it. I'm called a sexist, a racist. The other day, I was called, I'm for climate to devolve. So it doesn't matter with this. But I think that that's a new form of criticism that may mutate into something quite extraordinary that those critics that are just lifting up and spreading the word, and that is agenda writing, might then also begin being critical of other like work. And I watch from the sidelines, thrilled and amazed, meanwhile, posting art on my idiot Instagram that I hope people follow it because I see this work. I'm a hashtag archaeologist, okay? I watch your page, then I go to your producer's page, then to that person's page, and I find something that looks for one moment convincing. And I've accidentally, quote, discovered artists, but most of the artists, nothing happens to. I just want to level the playing field in my way as much as I can. Let me just throw in two um, thoughts on that. One of them is that the expansion of the art field, the art conversation is uh, extraordinarily positive. Uh, It was an airless ivory tower for the longest period of time. And even if the expansion by 
number brings in more mediocrity. If that 99% art is crap, 1% of art is great, then by increasing the amount of art, you're increasing that 1% treasure of humanity. So that's really exciting. But from a semantic standpoint, I think there's an interesting distinction that you can make between criticism and advocacy. Because mm. I think criticism, it has a, a, a different kind of discipline to it. It's coming from a different standpoint rather than saying what is good and what is bad. It's really about lifting up what you see as, as good and mm -hmm. elevating it in the consciousness. And I think there's a huge movement behind that. There's a lot of momentum there and it's entirely good. I don't think it's art criticism necessarily. I think there's a new term that a lot of people um, use, which is art writers which is yeah. a, a little bit of a, a more accurate yeah. term. I think that's fine for now, because right now, all of this is actually unknown to the public. That's the interesting thing. We talk about all this gigantic change, which is true, but really right now, we're changing the structures, the institutions, the machine, the launch vehicles. But if you ask people who's emerged in this century, for example, that you've heard of, Carl Walker, for example, emerged in 1994. They might be able to name Kahinde Wiley, who's not a very good artist, but did something quite extraordinary in the public eye by painting the first black president. Amy Sherrill might be known who is a, a better artist, certainly, the portrait of Michelle Obama. But other than that, those names are not known. Simone Lee, I was not in Venice. The outside of her pavilion was sort of astonishing in a one-off, bam, way. But right now, Andrew, the art writers are lifting up, pushing along the gigantic internal changes that are happening in the art world that I hope once we get critical and are able to be critical of art by underrepresented artists and women and Estonians, that we then could start seeing a lot of work, well, more work, not a lot, that was reaching people without wall labels. I'm not trying to say I'm for dumbing art down at all. This is goddamn complicated. Art is a sacred space to me. It's been here since the beginning. It uses us to reproduce itself. I'm not trying to say, oh, it has to be just pretty. But I'm looking forward to the time when these changes, and I won't be here to see it, are actually reaching a wider public. And it's really Really exciting. And all of art history is going to be rewritten. The collapse of the ideology of modernism is complete. Not that the art was bad, but the idea that art was linear. What a funny idea if you think back on it. It was like traffic directions from like, take Delacroix until you get to Corot, take a left at Corot until you hit this huge area called Corbeil, then go past, you know, Monet. And Manet, until you get to Monet and turn right at Cezanne. All French expressways, but that's MoMA. And they even are changing. All of you listening to this, if you accept this portfolio, you are being tasked, my loves, with rewriting art history. You don't have to put Matisse 
in the basement. But if you want to, that's okay for me. Just start doing it. And someday you'll be me sounding like an idiot, just like this, talking about the present. Going back to the writers who are kind of doing advocacy, they are being met in common cause by the collectors, by the curators, by the institutions, to a degree that, you know, I think it isn't moving the needle in a uh, gigantic way, but more artists from previously marginal backgrounds are entering, you know, the middle of the conversation uh, at a faster rate than ever before. I don't think that that's, that's um, debatable. But I do think, and here's just, a, this is like a guess, that if there were to emerge a, a slash and burn Robert Hughes type critic who is really embedded in either the Latinx community, the black community, the Chicano community, they would have a lot of pain for a long time because nobody would like them for a couple of years and then they would be very, very important. Well, a couple of things. Uh, Let's forget about the slash and burn Robert Hughes bullying model. But I agree with you on this. I've gone through and I lived through people not liking me and it's not so bad, first of all. So we've all got to grow up and get a grip. Second of all, when we talk about the Latinx community, et cetera, et cetera, we must also remember that from our little high horse that while there was no red wave, the Democrats did not so much win as Republicans lost with extremism. Generation Z saved us. However, Democrats, the art world, is losing Black and Hispanic voters because we insist on defining everything in our terms. We and This is something to be a little bit careful of up in our pointy-headed, breathing our own fume space. To get back to your point, yes, we must be able to be critical. And that will come. There's no question in my mind. And it will be fine. It will be no different than it's ever been before. And we'll still be arguing about this or that artist, whatever gender they are, in this or that big gallery. The big gallery game, sexy. I understand why artists love that honey smell. And they are given gigantic careers, but maybe not everybody needs a big career. I've never missed a show at a mega gallery, although Pace Gallery often seems like the fire festival to me. I never know what's going on there, but I would never miss a show, good, bad, or otherwise. At the same time, there are many art worlds. But again, I beg people, Don't just give 99% of the coverage to that 0.1% of the artists. And forget about Damien Hurst and that Teletubby Jeff Koons. Jeff may make another great piece of art. We don't always have to cover. Auctions have nothing whatsoever to do with the value of art. Prices don't mean anything. The sale of the Paul Allen guy, that's work 
that will never be seen again in our lifetimes because one billionaire sold it off to another billionaire and will never be seen again until next week when another billionaire might sell it. Those auctions that you all write about, those aren't shows. That's a showroom. They're hung for four days in a horrible way, cheek to jowl with labels and their numbers and prices on it. It's bullshit. I go see it because I love to see it, but it has nothing whatsoever to do with the life, the inner life of art. There's a disconnect. We talk about how great we're doing with the institutions and representation, and yet we still persist in telling how other people should identify themselves, how they should think. If somebody thinks otherwise, then like you say, they must be hated. I just think we're close. There's still a failure of nerve to speak up. You've got the reins. Seize them. Be a pirate. You're mutineers. The ship sank. That's what my book is about art is life gives us hope because the old structures are dead nobody likes art fairs and yet we must go on with them because that's where 50 percent of the money is coming from for the places that develop art i'm not going to argue against that or the lifestyle of all that or the biggest carbon footprint imaginable to crate and uncrate these things and jet them all over the world 365 days a year. Right now, that's the paradox. Just be a pirate. If you build it, they will come. If they came to me, Andrew, me, they'll come to you. I swear to God. I mean, one thing that you find out as an online art journalist is that the epiphenomena around art are of equal if not greater interest value to mass audiences than the dreaming while awake processing of experience that is really the core of art. It's almost like sex is about procreation, but people are much more interested in all the epiphenomena of courtship and romance and, and pornography and whatever. Going back to what you were saying about the pandemic, people going into their caves and getting, you know, close to what was at hand and, and making something out of that. They were also going to a totally different cave, which was their, their computer, and um, inventing these new boredom, you know, um, propelled uh, kinds of novelties like NFTs and the far more uh, profound and concerning um, AI art and generative art. And you, you've written about both of them memorably using the word crapola. <laughs> to describe them both. And you've also, you know, you minted with, with Kenny Schachter, you minted a really fun NFT of your own of the first 10,000 posts on your Instagram account that you sold for $95,000, an amazing sum that you donated to charity. So now Crypto Winter's on us. You're online all the time. You probably deal with these NFT people far more than I do. Do you think we're going to be talking about NFTs in 10 years from now? I called Crapola the results of the technology tool material call it what you will platform that was then called nft i still think nft is no better or worse than a pencil lithography a camera 
oil paint. I think it's just something for an artist to use. I mean, when the iPad came along, no one thought that that could be good for art. And then David Hockney became a good iPad artist. Someday, there may be a Francis Bacon of NFTs. When I was in the space trying to learn what they were by making one, which is always what I try to do first at home and private, but because NFT is about being embedded in a social network, I had to do it in public. They're all bros. It's a very male space with very generic art. Someday it'll be good. What's the new AI program called? Not Wally, but um, Dolly. Dolly, Dolly. That to me is far more interesting to me as a writer that this text that we use that we call words and language and signifiers and all that stuff turning into image based on the collective image memory bank of our the greatest computers ever invented our phones um turning in then to a you know another digital file that can be embedded in your device that you can then see that kind of interests me i think the point being that a lot of these technologies will be so primitive in about nine years that you won't even know how to access Instagram, NFTs. In nine years, it'll be like a beta video or like cassette tapes. My Instagram will be long lost like a, you know, friends page or whatever those were called. So how do you choose what to write about for New York Magazine today? It's complicated and it's simple. I'll tell you the complicated part first. Because I'm 71 and I can't stay up as late and I know less and my antenna touch fewer antenna, combined with the fact that my space, as delineated by New York Magazine, is a kind of higher profile space, I go to all the small galleries, I see everything, but I can't write on baby unknown artists who might have a one-day or two-day show. There's certain criteria I have to meet on the one hand. On the other, it's just as simple picking what I'm going to write as it always was. I'm like a fisherman or something. I'm casting my net into the water and I'm feeling strange vibrations. And suddenly I pull up an especially annoying fish. And I think, why is this fish a little more annoying than the same fish I caught last year? Same artist, same gallery. And I get ideas of why this artist might be plateauing or devolving or something. Or it's just like picking clothes or food. As Roberto always says, pleasure is an important form of knowledge. And I'm following pleasure, pain, annoyance, and that. And I pick it that way. It's that simple. I wait to have a reaction. I'm on pins and needles at all times. I'm astonished always, Andrew, that every work of art has two things in it. It has the courage that the artist had to go through to make it. And the physical love that they had to have 
through going through that process of doing it with a, a balsa wood or ink or a pencil or paint. I'm just amazed at that. And for the first seconds I'm seeing an object, I'm seeing something that's never been seen before, that's brand new, that is on some level for me, at least, and again, this is what's in the book, in conversation with all the art of its own time and all the art ever made. And I'm just amazed by that. In your essay um, that you wrote a few years ago that was really extraordinary about your former life as an artist, you wrote about how you based your epic, you know, largest body of your artwork on the structural logic of Dante's Divine Comedy because it solved a lot of decision-making problems for you. Yes. And I think that, you know, being a New York magazine, that solves a certain amount of decision-making problems for you too because it's a New York publication. Same as with the late and truly great Peter Sheldahl in the New Yorker magazine. A lot of critics don't have that kind of geographic specificity in their title or and maybe even in their, um, in their conception. Is that something that's very helpful that you think critics should refine or should they go and branch out and be more... Um, impressionistic, more derive-based and like that kind of um, situationist, you know, concept, like just going wherever they catch their eye. Like, how, how do you navigate this if you're not working for a New York-specific publication? I think that, first of all, the young should be writing about the young and maybe attacking the old. That's one category that knows no location. Footnote, there's probably less location-based stuff now because more people travel. They go to art fairs and documentas and all of that stuff. That is where you meet other people, sleep with them, argue with them, become friends and enemies with them. Those spaces, whether we like them or not, are tremendous time machines where relationships that would have taken Two years, three years to develop or devolve happen in three nights where you become best friends, then worst enemies, and agree never to speak to each other, and then you go out for coffee the next day. That's what the life of art is. Two, I am not socially well-adjusted at all. I never really had a chance, in spite of how out I seem and how insane and demonstrative and social, Roberta and I have not gone out to a sit-down dinner in 10 years because I'm not well-adjusted. I can't sit next to anybody for three hours and talk. I only have one thing I talk about, which is, what have you seen? I don't want to just talk about Trump, that we all know what we think of that. So I can't go to art fairs that are out of New York So I think that since you all love traveling and you meet each other and hate each other and whatever there, keep traveling. You don't have to be bound. For me, I needed the smaller arena just to know where I was going because I I started so late, my loves. I would say any way you do it is fine. Forget location. There's no more copyright. There is no more place. Write on where or whatever the fuck you want. Just, I beg you, put in a little bit of opinion. Write in your own voice. Keep it simple, stupid. Mention the artist in the first one or two 
sentences, please, so I know. Sometimes I read two paragraphs and I go, oh, I didn't know we were writing about, you know, Oida Sika or Gabriela Roscoe. I thought you were writing about like uh, some something else. Please get to the point. People want to know what you're thinking. So, you know, when you were trying to make it as an artist in Chicago and you were running an artist-run gallery, you mentioned how Peter Sheldahl writing about you was a major milestone of success in your career. And your new book has one of his typically beautifully written pieces of prose on the back. He passed away earlier this year. And I, I wonder, how, how do you remember him and what do you think he will be remembered for? Yeah. My late friend, Peter Sheldahl, who I spoke to every other day, more or less, on the phone for 30 years, because he, too, fancied himself like I and Roberta, not part of society. By society, I mean people to go out after the shows, after the museums, after all that. We talked the most boring talk in the world, shop talk of writers. Nobody is interested in our shop talk. We talked about criticism, how it moved, how it didn't. I was astonished when I would think I was ahead of Peter on a fast take on a new young artist that he say never had heard of, let's just say, because he wasn't as upfront on the waterfront as I always like to be like what's what's here in this tiny gallery he was never like that but the minute it surfaced in a bigger show he blew me away that in his quick takes of how fast he could sort of size up the work say in my own alienated majesty what i forgot to say but knew i thought he was amazing that way he was careful to keep me in line in some of my more assholish behavior. I would listen to his reviews that he would read out loud to me as they developed for The New Yorker. Why did I do that? Because they were beautiful. And I knew that he too lived with demons like I did, knowing that our work was terrible. Every sentence Peter wrote, he really worked for. I do too, but my work is never as beautiful, erudite, or insightful as Peter or Roberta's. Roberta does what Peter does, but condensing it in great density, right? Peter would do it like a kind of small cathedral where you'd walk in and kind of go, whoa, I really kind of like where I am. Where am I? He would locate you, be a voice in your ear. Your better angel over your shoulder allow you to say negative things about the work that you didn't quite allow yourself to say. We could be annoying with each other because it's hard being one of only a very small group of people. Like, how come they're always invited to Venice and we're not? You know, we'd be amazed like at all those beautiful symposia where critics are invited to other curators and critic shows and then review each other's shows. 
like sometimes on our net, certainly elsewhere, certainly. And we'd be like, invite us. We were huge babies together. He bragged about his children a lot. He talked about fireworks. He would never let me talk about the Yankees. He only talked about the Mets. He was a terrible listener. The way he taught me to be less assholish, I'd like to think. I'd always, in our conversation, say to him, this is the point, Peter, in the conversation where you pretend that there's somebody else here and you say, what's up with you? Roberta has a little of that. These are such highly, finely tuned mechanisms and Geiger counters. They're so focused on the fault line, they sometimes miss that like nearby, there's a whole nother state that might feel the vibration. You ask me about Peter, an amazing guy. How will he be remembered? I don't know, because are art critics famous, Andrew? I wonder really, because if Clement Greenberg is the most famous art critic, most people listening to this have only read Art and Kitsch and maybe his other essay towards a new Leoacon. You've never read his criticism. I think it's great in the first 10, 15 years. Then it gets as bad as Robert Hughes, his taste freezes. Critics are not famous long. So be it. We're very here. And very gone. I hope that people read my good old friend Peter's work. We went through cancer together, Roberta's and then his. You know, we went through it all. I hope people read him, maybe just at least for my lifetime. I miss him and these phone calls already every day. And yet the art world moves on so quick from critics. Thank you, Jerry. That was surpassingly lovely. Thanks, Andrew. I love your podcast. I love that you guys are out there doing this. Few fewer top 10 or this and that hotshot list or keep them all, Andrew. You're doing a great job, but just throw in criticism that no one (laughs) the hell reads anymore. They're not going to read it anyway. You might as well carry them and give me a password, will you? Speaking of um, criticism that nobody reads, I I hope that many, many people read your criticism in your new book, (laughs) Art is Life. Icons and Iconoclasts, Visionaries and Vigilantes, and Flashes of Hope in the Night by Jerry Saltz. Jerry, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's a huge honor to be with you again, Andrew. I really appreciate it. Keep up the great work at Artnet. Everyone's watching. Well, that's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manoli, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. 